In the beginning, I needn't speak to you that Montana was a pretty fantastic resource prior to human habitation here. Um, when the land belonged to God, so to speak. Um, and I think we have to recognize the fact that prior to hunting and fishing licenses and fights over conservation, there were a couple people who were utilizing this area beforehand. And those people who utilized it, the indigenous peoples here, there were there was a relative balance between the, the number of people and their utilization of that wildlife resource. Although there were situations where they got overutilized, no question about it, and I'll speak about that in a second. But I think we have to remember that in the beginning, there were indigenous folks here, and from that, it moved to trappers. Ta-da, capitalism. We're gonna start making money. 1805, Lewis and Clark expedition. And Louisiana Purchase. As we all know, Louisiana, part of the per, per, excuse me, purpose of the expedition was to explore the lands for what it's going to be worth. Uh, Western Europeans have a way of looking at things in terms of, have a way of looking at things in terms of how they can utilize it and make money off it. And it started pretty much with trappers, as you're probably aware, Hudson Bay Company had its first presence here. Interesting thing is that the early trappers pulled the native people into it. Um, there were problems with uh, beavers getting depleted in the Bitterroot Valley as early as the 1810s. And it's because indigenous people were working with the trappers to trap beaver. Um, in fact, there's, I've read some things that said that beaver trapping and beaver trade was pretty much shot by 1840, partially because the beavers were trapped out, certainly in the northern Rockies, and the, the beaver hat uh, market fell. Then, <laughs> then came the settlers, or the colonizers. They, they call it colonization. There's got, to, there's got to come up with a new word to describe the Western European uh, taking over of the West, other than colonization, because I think colonization infers images of tricorn hats and stock, high stockings and guys wearing wigs. But it was colonization, and I think uh, historians and political, political people agree. I mean, it was indeed colonization settlement. We had settle settlers coming out west on basically unclaimed lands out of, in Montana, the, the, uh, the, uh, um, the, the, the purchase, Louisiana Purchase. So people started moving out. As many of you know, eastern Montana and central Montana, cattle herds up from Texas people coming in and utilizing those lands. And then there was the mining industry. And again, you have all these people coming in, multiplying populations. These folks were all, um, when they utilized wildlife resources, were all subsistence users. You know, I learned the term pot hunter when I, as a, getting trained in anthropology as people who steal archaeological uh, uh, and historical items from sites. But a pot hunter is somebody who hunts for the pot. And that's what was going on here. We had a lot of people. Where the native population in Montana was estimated to be a few hundred thousand. And there's argument, and, and it, it's hard to do, 
once we had settlers coming in, colonial change in Montana, those numbers were exponential. And there was absolutely no um, restriction on the use of these wildlife resources. There were no hunting seasons, no nothing. So people just, you know, shot and fished as they wished. Um, there was year-round subsistence hunting, no bag limits. There was market hunting, as you can see. You've probably seen pictures out of Anaconda and Butte of the uh, wild game markets that they had there, as well as Helena. And so the commercialization of wildlife began very early in Montana. There were also weird methods. It wasn't just fishing with hook and line, uh, uh, nets, carbide. The miners up here in Red Lodge, as well as the folks over in Butte, you know the carbine lamps they had? If you take a glass jar and you put a piece of carbide in it, put a lid on it, and poke a hole in it and throw it the creek, once the water hits the carbide, it explodes. And that was one of the ways of fishing back in those days, so that you could do this. Um, also, dumping sawdust in the creek, smothering the fish. Um, and destruction of habitats left and right. Cer certainly in the areas where mining took place, and also logging, just straight clear-cutting for railroad ties, all, all the things that were bringing so-called civilization to the West. I think we all know about the, the slaughter of bison, and in fact there's some people talking right now in another session about bringing bison back and the importance to indigenous people and the importance to all of us, I think, in terms of bringing bison back into the population of Montana. It was a two-fold thing. It was making money off, off the hides, because often bison were slaughtered and the hides taken and the carcasses left to rot. And it was also well within the United States Department of War on how to finally bring in and, and rein in uh, Native American populations that were in the Northern Plains. By 1886, that was theoretically the year when the last bison was killed in Montana. Supposedly killed outside of Glasgow, and a bunch of guys were at a bar, and someone came in and said, hey, there's a buffalo running out there. Really? I haven't seen one of those in years. And they all ran out on their horses, and they killed it. So you had a, you had a twofold thing going on here, both the the economic uh, uh, capitalization of bison, bison bones for fertilizer and things, hides, as well as finally suppressing the native populations on the plains. 1865. Two guys from the Montana Territorial Legislature, the Stewart brothers, who were part of the Grand uh, uh, Coors Ranch over in Deer Lodge, were the first ones to propose uh, fishing game laws. Montana had their first ones passed in 1865, and it just said you had to fish with hook and line. You couldn't use dynamite, you couldn't use carbide, you couldn't stuff the cricks. You had to use hook and line. Who was going to uh, enforce that was another question. <laughs> the county sheriff, maybe? But it was a beginning, an important one. I show you this picture because this is important in a broader sense. These are some big, big, big kahunas in, in, in natural resources. Um, 
On the left, you've got Gifford Pinshaw, first uh, head of the Forest Service or Forest Reserves. In the middle, you've got Theodore Roosevelt and John Muir. And at the bottom, you have George Bird Grinnell. And I show you this picture, aside from the fact that all of them, short of Muir, had a direct association with Montana, it brings up a very direct and important um, distinction. Pinchot, Roosevelt, were, and so was Grinnell, were conservationists. By that, 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 that term, at the turn of the century, up to the turn of the century, and even today, means that you're looking at the utilization of a natural resource in a measured fashion for sustainability. John Muir was a preservationist, as were the people who started Yellowstone and Glacier. It's a very different philosophy on things, and that is you save it, you draw, draw a line around it, and you keep it. Um, hunting generally isn't allowed in national parks. There are a couple where they've had to do it. But timber harvest, no. Uh, mining, no. All of the things that were ascribed, like the Forest Service lands, were prohibited. And that distinction is an important one. Um, because, a lot, again, a lot of people make the generalizations. Well, they're a conservationist, and they have this vision of somebody, you know, working on national parks. <laughs> it's a whole different philosophy that came out then. I should also tell you that at the turn of the 20th century, there was a huge firefight going on between the various uh, resource advocacy groups in the United States government, between the conservationists and the preservationists. Uh, the Audubon Society was, was involved in that. In fact, the National Audubon Society got into a big fight. You think we fight on guns now? At the turn of the 20th century, Winchester in, in 1897 came out with a shotgun that was a repeating shotgun. Up to that point, everything was a double barrel shotgun, pretty much a single shot. The Audubon Society went just crazy because they figured every bird on the planet was going to get killed now. And they, were, they launched a very strong um, campaign against repeating shotguns. So we talk about, you know, AR-15s now and semi-automatic weapons and so-called assault guns. This ain't nothing new, guys. Been, to, been there, done that. That was tied in with the Lacey Act of 1900, which prohibited the interstate transportation of illegally taken wildlife and bird feathers. Hence the Audubon Society, they were hooked in with Lacey. They were fire, fighting the milliners because ladies' hats had all these peacock feathers, these wonderful wild bird feathers. The guys were shooting in a market context, killing all these birds. So we had all this going on. That was kind of the background. Also, I should mention, nowadays we look at conservation, hunting and fishing, national park as the people's thing, that Joe, the, the guy from who works a job in Milwaukee as a, as a lathe operator. That park is his as much as everybody else. Keep in mind that the leaders in conservation and preservation were not the working stiffs in Anaconda. 
These were moneyed guys. Pinchot, big money family. Roosevelt, need I say more? <laughs> John Muir, same way as uh, George Bird Grinnell. So it's just interesting to note that the great demographic, uh, democratic, excuse me, uh, sense that we have today in conservation, that you know everybody should have a right to these things, was done by some pretty elite folks. Because who else could afford to go on a six-week bison hunt in 1880? You know, I mean, it wasn't the guy who was working in the, in the smelter in Anaconda. So these are the folks. I think it's an important thing to keep in mind. It, it has changed. W.F. Scott. He was the first state game warden appointed in Montana. And it was in 19... Uh, I keep getting it confused. 1901. He was a point. I like this touch, yours truly. That's the inside of a, uh, every year the state game warden would give a report to the governor, and that was on the inside page of the, the first report. Yours truly, W.F. Scott. W.F. Scott was totally qualified for this job. The Helena directory lists him as a plumber two years earlier. Uh, so he was obviously a bit of a political appointment. Um, but he was the first state game warden, who along with him had eight deputies appointed. Nowadays this position is the director of Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, but in those days that was the state game warden, and it was that up until the 1940s. Anyhow, i just show you that, to show you what a dapper guy W.F. Scott was. Also a couple of samples of what the law books look like. When I was in the field, guys used to complain, well you had to be a Philadelphia lawyer to read the law books. You look at those, they're pretty simple. They were about 40 pages long. But you got to remember, too, in 1903, there was the first hunting licenses proposed. And those were for non residents. Leave it to us to nail the guys coming to visit. <laughs> we do it all. I mean, this town is built on tourism. Non-residents, and look at that, 25 bucks for a big game license. In 1903, that was a lot of money. As opposed to 1905, residents must purchase a hunting fishing license, a dollar per family. We're always looking out for our guys. <laughs> you wouldn't believe, during my course of tenure with Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, when I, uh, whenever there was a license increase, you could increase the resident, the non-residents by hundreds of dollars. People go, yeah, good idea. You increase the state elk license by $2, and you'd think that you'd taken their firstborn. And they still do it that way. I can't put five more bucks in a elk license. It, it, a lot of this is, the history comes back again. Just some other things here. The first fish hatchery was built in Anaconda in 1908. So at the turn of the 20th century, start, stuff started gearing up, and it was because they started having money to do it. You had a state game warden, you, chart, you bought licenses, that money went into resource management. 1910, elk moved from Yellowstone National Park around Montana because they'd been pretty much depleted. Um, and then we get into the 20s with acquisitions and then uh, winter ranges. I'll talk about that later. But I show you this just, things really started moving then. 
I bring this up, the Swan River Massacre, because I think it's really an important point in history, both for our department and for what they call Indian law. In 1908, um, a group of Pondere hunters came off the Flathead Res up the Swan Valley to hunt. And, in the, uh, in the, and they had state hunting licenses, they had official permission from the Indian agent, which was required in those days. Uh, all, the, all the technical stuff was done. They were confronted in the Swan Valley by a state game warden, told they couldn't do it. He was sure they were, quote, poaching. Out of it, and, D and Dave Walter, who so many of you know of Dave, and as many have formerly worked for the, uh, the society here and wrote a lot of things, did a really good piece on the Swan River Massacre. What ended up happening is four of that crew got killed by the warden, and the warden was killed also. What's important there, aside from the story, and it's a long story that would merit its own presentation, the differences between state and federal official on how treaty rights are interpreted, because in 1855, the Hellgate Treaty was passed, which guaranteed hunting and fishing rights to the signatories of that treaty on all, to Native people on all unclaimed land, which has come to mean U.S. property, Forest Service, BLM. Um, it's why there's a bison hunt outside of uh, Yellowstone Park here. It's on unclaimed land. Um, that treaty is very important. Um, the contradictions on the state and the federal interpretations of that brought this thing to happen. Um, it was also happening at the time with newly instituted requirements for resident hunters. Our folks here in Montana were, we didn't think it was such a great idea to have to pay a buck for a hunting license. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of resistance to that. And if my experiences with game warden, even in the 80s and 90s, is any indication, there still is by virtue of some of the tickets that I wrote. Um, but there was a questionable investigation on it, handled very badly. Uh, one, of the, one, one of the witnesses disappeared. All of the papers disappeared. It's a very, very, it's an interesting story. Also interested that when the game warden was killed, his name was Peyton, uh, there was no p uh, pension for state employees then. So what the legislature decided to do was swear in his wife as a state game warden so as to provide for his wife and family. Now in 1908, do you think there's, what would did not exist for a certain segment of our population in 1908? Yep. The 19th Amendment hadn't been passed and you couldn't be a peace officer if you couldn't vote. So what they, 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 they went through a bunch of gesticulations and paid her a lump sum, which started the idea of pensions for people killed working for the state. Anyhow, what's even more interesting is in 10 years later, initially the reports were savage Indians kill game warden. 10 years later, it was 180 degrees in the outdoor magazines. This renegade game warden killed these poor Indians. So it was interesting to see the way the perception changed. And I just, you know, I went down a rabbit hole with this and I was involved in some other things because a group of my wardens wanted to, uh, well, did nominate the game warden 
to uh, uh, kill the line of duty uh, thing, and there was a huge controversy over it. Uh, my own personal opinion was the game warden was, it was a tragedy, the game warden wasn't acting in the, in the line of duty, which I, when I, being deputy chief of law enforcement, a lot of my guys didn't like that, me having that opinion. Because he was killed in the line of duty. Why he was killed? It's like southern sheriffs who, who get killed in the line of duty are members of the Klan. There's an ethical and a question. Anyhow, important thing to mention. I can't do something like this without talking about Charlie Russell, right? Jake DeHart. Jake DeHart became state game warden in 1913. He was, spent a lot of time, he grew up in northern Montana and Great Falls was a buddy of Charlie Russell's. Uh, there was obviously a connection there and these positions were always political, politically loaded. I, I haven't been able to find out the details on the political load there, but Jake DeHart, Charlie Russell mentions him in a number of, uh, of his writings. There's some letters between him and Jake DeHart. Very well known, the DeHart family is still involved in Department of Livestock uh, here in Montana. Anyway, 1915, the legislature, in its infinite wisdom, as it keeps doing, decided to mess with the Montana Fish and Game. They wanted to get rid of it. At which point, there was an outcry amongst a lot of people to, ooh, okay, I'll finish this up and then zip through, uh, an outcry to stop it. What happened was Charlie Russell painted this picture. It's called The Hunter's Shame. They sold this picture to raise money to Hart and his people to fight the legislature. The head of the state agency was fighting the legislature and raising money to do it, and Charlie Russell helped, <laughs> which I thought was kind of interesting. Very quickly, I'm going to go through this stuff here. Uh, things really changed with wildlife and fisheries management. With There's an example of an early fish. Um, the, in order to count fish, you electrocute them. That's an early fish electrocution piece of equipment. Uh, taking fish into the backcountry. See those milk cans? They have a little rod going through the top and a cork, and they bob up and down when they go down the trail so as to aerate the milk cans to keep air oxygen in with the fish. So as the mule or the horse is going back and forth, those little things are going up and down. Aldo Leopold, the father of wildlife management, there was a huge uh, effort in the 30s, which was important, to, uh, on behalf of wildlife, we destroyed it all, nationally. Aldo Leopold uh, was a Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin professor who basically set the, the basis for the study of wildlife management, the scientific wildlife management. Roosevelt calls a conference and, the, and a series of bills are adopted, which gave Montana a lot of money. There was an example of, they had a couple of demonstrations in D.C. over the bill, hunters and everybody. Pittman-Robertson Act, again, it's a tax on ammunition and firearms. We, were the, we are the beneficiary of that even today. You, many of you heard of Bert, uh, duck stamps, 19, 1934, again, for migratory wildlife. Bob Cooney was the first head of the wildlife division for the department. Up to that point, it was pretty much 
put and take, moving animals around, kind of not particularly well organized. Bob was one of the first people who came out in the late 30s as a wildlife, uh, specifically a wildlife manager, had formal training in it. And Bob lived up until 2012, I think. He was in his late 90s when he passed away. But he was one of the first guys. And what this shows you is the genesis here from uh, of an attitude within the department on how things are done. It starts with game preserves. You close an area off, don't let anybody hunt it, and we'll grow animals out of that. From that to game ranges, which is the purchase of land to give them winter range, to a wildlife management area, which has a far broader view. It's a habitat view. And it's all consistent with the time. The preserves are in the teens and 20s. Game ranges started in the late 30s and the 40s. And wildlife management started after World War II and are today the primary thing. It's, it's the uh, field of dreams belief. Build it and they will come. If you set aside these areas for winter range, for wildlife, they will prosper. First one, Judith Game Range. There's the bear tooth. It's bought from the Milton family back in the 70s. It's just some picture, old-timey pictures of, we used to release pheasants. We still, uh, the department is proposing that. Some more pictures on that. Again, Bob Cooney, Jim McLucas on the right, Rex Smart. These are the holy trinity of wildlife management for, our depart for Fish, Wildlife, and Parks for many years. The two guys on the edge were scientists. Rex Smart was a the Rube Goldberg, he made the equipment for these guys to use. The use of planes, I could go in more detail here, what I, I have a lot of pretty pictures. <laughs> yeah, wait a minute, there's one here, I gotta have just the, the second to see if I can. Anybody see anything in that picture? Yeah. <laughs> what do you see? Deer? Yeah, most people miss that. But uh, we, we took that out of the helicopter. Wolf work, the grand open, grizzly bears, big elk, lions, so as not to be a time hog here. This is the last thing here. Just Montana land tenure is real critical into how people view of, uh, our th wildlife. There are a number of issues that I can talk to you later. Anyhow, the long and the short of it is it's our legacy and our kids' legacy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.